the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. I need to uh, give you guys... Matt, you good with your iPhone? You good? All right. Um, If you are a new member here, we are, if you've seen our new member board, we are light years behind in that. So uh, if we could, if you're a new member here, if you guys could just gather here uh, by the front, by the pulpit after the service, and Matt's going to get some quick uh, pictures so that we can update our our board there. So if you guys wouldn't mind, just like right over here, and he'll get it pretty fast because he is a technological genius and he has an iPhone. So we'll get that taken care of. And uh, Joseph Hawley uh, told me yesterday something I had totally looked over. And the third, I believe it was the third Sunday of May of last year was when I preached. And I, this, this term has always freaked me out. My trial sermon, Right. It's like, is there going to be an execution afterwards? You know, jail sentence? What exactly is going to, you know, go down here? But yeah, third Sunday last year, May, uh, right here, the trial sermon. And uh, that was when I first met all of you guys as a group uh, outside of the committee. I just want to say, man, it has been an awesome, awesome ride. I love you guys. I really do. And uh, I'm so excited. I, I say this quite often. I'm excited about what God has done here. Um, let me just kind of give you guys an update here before we jump in heavy. This is not supposed to happen, okay? What we've seen the Lord do here, this is not normal. Alright? What's normal is a young preacher comes in, and six months later, they fire him, and maybe they kill him too. You know, it's normally about how it goes, alright? Sometimes there's some business meetings involved there, deacons, you know, no. But it's been an awesome thing to see the Lord work. And here's what's been so cool um, that, that I've seen. We've seen uh, children, alright, come to faith in Christ. We've seen young men, young women. And I'm going to be very careful here, but we've seen older people. I'm going to keep the ER on the end of that word old so I don't get in trouble. But what has been so cool is we've seen a variety of people that the Lord has brought to us. And the thing I think that encourages my heart most of all is, um, is I get to spend time sometimes with, with folks who are not church people. Okay? Y'all alright? Y'all woke up yet? Okay, people that you, you, most people would not look at them and be like, I think you teach a Sunday school class. You guys going through Ezekiel, that's where you are. People that most folks would not associate with this, but this is what I've been so excited about. People, and I'm just going to be honest this morning, people who if you brought them to some churches, alright, we're just going to level. If you brought them to some churches, they would be exposed to the high nose disease. Have you ever been to one of those churches? Right? You walk in, if you don't look right, if you're the wrong color, if you have a tattoo, if your hair is a little bit long, or if you spike it up like your pastor does, or if you're not wearing a suit and tie, you just kind of get the look like, who are you and did you bring, did you bring Lysol with you? We're just being honest. Here's what I love. Some of you who've been here for a long time, you're like, hey, I saw so-and-so, and they're a new person, and, and people who some church people would be like, who are they, and where can we refer them, when can we refer them to another church? You guys are stoked and excited about it. So that encourages me and lets me know that we're about Jesus. Amen? 
or about Jesus because it doesn't matter what you make, what you look like, what you wear. The change happens in the heart. So I say that and I also want to say a word about the newsletter article. I haven't had any complaints, emails or phone calls, but it is somewhat brutal. Uh, if you've not gotten a uh, newsletter, I encourage you to pick one up. And the reason why I wrote what I wrote, and it has to do with evangelism and those who claim to be saved, all right, but their lives never change. The reason I would go that direction and kind of be that straightforward is because I've been reading through the Bible and I see this theme come up time and time again to where Jesus says that there's going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day who are going to show up and really not even be worried. They're like, bro, I'm in. Like, I am in. If there's heaven, I am definitely in. Like, I'm saved, bro. Like, I am there. Jesus, you might want to go ahead and just, just like, I, if you want to get, let me get into like the quick lane, okay? You can, you can, you know, put all these people through the crucible, but I'm in, Jesus. Jesus says, over and over, that there will be, and this is Jesus, who is God. And so how many people would it have to be for God, God in the flesh, God the Son, God incarnate, for Jesus to say there will be in that day, watch out, many, 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 who will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then they give this long explanation of why they thought they were going to be in heaven. And Jesus gives these bone-chilling words. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And this, this should shake all of us, for I never knew you. The reason why I challenge you guys this month in the article is because I love you. And if this is a typical church, there are many, many, many of you who've been here for a long time but there's not been the heart change, okay, that Jesus says always happens when He shows up, then you need to get saved for real. Y'all alright? The reason why we go down that road sometimes is to shake people out of a false hope of a false heaven. And I pray that the Lord would do a work in this church so that our members, alright, and say a very radical statement, I pray that all, every single last one of our members would get saved. And then if all of our members get saved, if they get born again the way Jesus says people get born again when they really get born again, you can't help but have the church grow. Right? Like you can't help in prayer meeting ladies showing up and be like, hey, I found out about a girl who is not married and she's pregnant and she's working a part-time job. I'm going to spearhead this and we're going to hopefully support her financially so that she won't have an abortion. You won't be able to control that. It will just happen, right? Prayer meeting will go a long time. Any prayer requests, any lost people, boom, 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 boom. I mean, shotgun. There will be actually a lot of people come to prayer meeting. All right? We're just going to level, Okay. There's going to be a lot of people and you're going to actually become very uncomfortable with your life because you know people who are not saved. It's going to bother you. Like, man, my family members, like, I want them to be saved, but they're not saved and they're just blind and it breaks my heart. You're going to lay there sometimes at night and just pray for them. You're going to be going throughout your day and you're just going to, you're just going to stop and say, God, would you save my dad? You won't be able to hold it back. And the awesome thing about when church members really get saved is that you don't have to program that. Amen? 
It's not like you go, all right, we got this eight week series and we're going to be like Jesus followers. That's our course. Jesus followers for eight weeks. And after the eight weeks is over, well, we're not doing the course anymore. So we don't have to follow Jesus. It's going to be an awesome, awesome thing. You will not be able to hold this church back if the majority, and I pray all of our church members truly get born again. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that they're not nice people. This is an incredibly loving church. I'm saying to get saved the way that Jesus says everyone must be saved, and that's through repentance and faith in Jesus that results in our heart being radically transformed to where the old has passed away and all has become, has come new. So before we jump into Luke, I want you to turn your Bibles to, y'all okay? It's really awkward in here right now. Anybody else sense that? And somebody tell me, why would Jesus give us those words and why would your pastor mention that awkward stuff? Is it because I'm a fine connoisseur of awkwardness and Jesus is up in heaven like, I made him feel awkward again! No. It's because Christ loves you. And it's because He's placed me here to be the shepherd and because I love you guys as well. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 and 2. Um, Let's turn there very quickly. Um, I was reading this yesterday morning um, in my quiet time. It just really jumped out at me. It's an awesome, awesome picture. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, it says, and this is God, by the way, a little background here. God is basically saying, Israel, you're about to come under the hammer of judgment. Like, the bottom's about to fall off. It's going to hit the fan. It's go time. I'm taking names and I'm coming. And verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All right, notice that picture there. Jesus says... Alright, heaven is his throne. Any of you men have a big lazy boy recliner? Any of you guys? Alright? When you sit down on your throne, your recliner, your huge seat, that's like your place of power, especially ladies when your man has the remote, right? He's in control of the universe. Alright, now notice, look, the Lord says that heaven is my throne. That's pretty big, right? And the earth is my footstool. Think of that in terms of comparative power. And then here's a funny question. God's like, okay, so what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Verse 2, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God's saying, you know what? There's nothing that you can create that I did not already make. In other words, if you want to build some huge tabernacle, some temple, I'm the one who created the wood and the gold and the elements that would make up your actual offering. So that's when he says, and here's our our imperative. Last half of verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So if you're here today and you're like, man, Jeff, I have problems in my life. I don't know how to read the Bible. I get messed up sometimes. I make mistakes. I feel like a failure. I don't really know that much about this Jesus thing. I want to notice that God specifically turns us away from bringing all of these great offerings to God. And God says, I'm going to look at the person who is humble and contrite in spirit. 
That means that if you come here today and you tremble, he says, if you tremble at my word and you say, God, I do not have the answers. Can anybody identify with that? All right. Say, God, I do not have the answers, but I need you to give them to me. God says, I will look upon you with favor. So when we go through this series in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, I just want to encourage you. Sometimes, you know, people can get overwhelmed with different things, but there is going to be the hand of God on your life if you humble yourself toward Him. And He will bless you with truth. So let's take a few moments um, to pray. This is going to be an introduction to the book of Luke, so it won't normally be like the the, the two-hour sermons that you're accustomed to. But let's just go ahead, and uh, some of y'all didn't even catch that. You're like, it's more like three, Jeff. So uh, let's just go ahead and, and, and take a moment and ask the Lord to help us before we really get cranked off. Lord, I, we thank You for Your Word. God, I just ask that You would calm our hearts this morning. Do pray, Father, for the church members who have never been born again, that You would save them today. Lord, for the one who feels crushed by the load of sin or what they haven't done that they should have, Lord, I pray that You would help them to know that You look upon them this morning. You will bless them with truth. Lord, would You help us to understand what Your Word means? Would you help it to apply, help us to apply it to our lives? In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So right out of the gate, here is Luke, and he's saying, you know what, guys? I'm letting you know up front what I'm writing this gospel for. Now, we live in 2011, and usually right out of the gate, somebody will say, all right, Jeff, you just read from the Bible. Why would you actually teach through the Bible? Well, if the Bible has errors, then why would we actually teach the Bible? Right? Like we may reference it, but we wouldn't actually teach it. We wouldn't actually break it down word by word and go for it. So there's a lot of people then they said, Jeff, man, I'm not trying to be like, you know, Mr. Skeptic or Atheist. I'm just not sure if the Bible is trustworthy. I don't know if I can actually believe it. Um, if you've got a bulletin this morning, you should have one of these handouts there. And um, we're just going to walk through some of this. This is the trustworthiness of the Bible compared to other ancient sources. This is for the nerds. Alright, so if you're a nerd this morning, this is, this is for you because we don't want you to be hung up all the way through the message. We want to kind of deal with it up front. Um, this is the New Testament specifically compared to other ancient documents. Alright, the first guy we have here is Homer. Um, he wrote the Iliad and he also uh, has a very strange yellow uh, son named Bart. And the number of copies is 643. Alright, now notice when he wrote it. 900 B.C. The earliest copy that we have is 400 B.C. That means that there's a 500-year time span in between when he wrote it 
and when we actually have it. So for the people who say, well, it could have been changed, all we all accept the Iliad. We read that in school. Homer wrote it. So if we accept Homer's Iliad, then we'll see how much more we can accept the Bible. Notice number two, Caesar, uh, who wrote the Gallic Wars, which is modern-day France, also gave us cheap, greasy pizza. When it was written, uh, 100 to 44 B.C., our earliest copy, check this out, is 900 A.D. That's a thousand years between when it was written and when we actually have the earliest copy. But everyone accepts Julius Caesar and Conquest of Gaul and the Gallic Wars, all of his works, as legit. Number three, Plato. Earliest copy. The Tetralogies. If you want to go geek out this afternoon and bore yourself, and you can go on Google and download the Tetralities, because he does not need your money anymore, right? Plato's been dead a long time. He doesn't need the uh, kickback. So notice we've got a earliest copy here, 900 A.D. It was written somewhere between 427 and 347 B.C., 1,200 years between the original composition date and our earliest copy. And notice how many copies we actually have. We have seven With Caesar, we've got ten. Notice Aristotle. He wrote it, his work, somewhere between 384 and 322 B.C. Our earliest copy is 1100 A.D. 1400 years between the date it was written and the date we actually have the earliest copy. If you take any philosophy course, you will study Aristotle until you're ready to get in a time machine, go back in time, and punch him in the face. We accept the works of Aristotle as legit. Notice we only have 49 copies of him. Then we have Herodotus, his great work, The Histories, which is awesome. 480 to 425 B.C., it was written somewhere within that time frame. And notice, by the way, scholars, we're still sticking with B.C. and A.D. here, not C.E. and B.C.E. because it splits upon the same events. It's just simply a way for secular sources to try to deny that Jesus was the one who actually split history. So notice we've got 1,300 years um, with 900 A.D. being the earliest copy for Herodotus, and we only have eight copies of that. Euripides, a philosopher, same thing. He wrote between 480 and 406 B.C. 1100 A.D. is the earliest copy. We have 1,500 years between that, give or take. We only have nine copies. Hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen. The New Testament, which was written between 40 and 90 A.D., our earliest copy. This fluctuates. Some sources say it's 125 A.D., Here we have 130. It's a a parchment of the book of John. Notice we have a time span of 30-ish years. 40. For Luke, it was about 30 from the actual events. And there are over 24,000, some some scholars say it's around 25,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament. Holy shnikes. Are we seriously going to sit here? And notice, notice the bar graph too. You see how astronomically huge the New Testament manuscript evidence is in comparison to every ancient writer. 
So he, here's what I'm kind of, I kind of laugh at this now. Like when I see somebody on TV and the, you know, you got like a, a guy, you know, he's like, well, I'm not really sure if we can trust the Bible. I'm like, well, here's what you have to do. If you take that position, you have to go to every school, every university and say, you cannot study philosophy. You can't study history. You can't study ancient science. You cannot study ancient sociology. You cannot really study anything up until the modern time. And you can't really understand the modern times until you understand where it came from, right? So basically, let's just burn, let's just, you know, close all the universities, tell all the kids you don't have to go to school. All you kids are like, sweet, you know? Like, you can't know, you can't know anything with even a degree of probability, much less certainty. And this is not even getting into the text of the Bible to show that it confirms with outside evidence. For example, um, one, uh, one example here would be, um, I wrote this down, uh, the Hittites. All right? It was an ancient group in, in uh, the Old Testament times. The Old Testament was the only ancient source that told anything about the Hittites. And all these scholars were like, well, the Bible's a joke because we've never found the Hittites. That's a mythological people. Early 1900s, they found a huge library of Hittite sources and the language has been translated. In other words, the science and history, archaeology is slowly catching up to the Bible. So that's for you nerds. You can trust in the manuscript evidence of the Bible. So when the when Luke says here, he says, I have compiled a narrative of the things. What he actually did is he actually went and he talked to the people who were there, compiled it, and that's what we're actually going to study. So you say, Jeff, man, right out of the gate, um, what if I don't believe the Bible? Well, usually there's going to be one of two directions we're going to go. Number one, we're going to say, well, I'm going to trust in my human reason and I'm going to disbelieve the Bible until somebody proves it to be right in every way, right? Like all these random groups of people in the Old Testament, the only time I'm going to actually believe that or believe Luke is if these historical sites have been pinpointed and we know exactly who they were so we know that it corresponds, all right? So that would say that I actually trust in my human reasoning as opposed to God's truth. There's also another mindset, which it's so freeing to say, you know what, man, I've been saved. I have been born again. God has changed my life. So because he's changed my life, I'm going to believe the Bible until it's proven to be wrong. You say, now, Jeff, are you saying that the Bible can be proven wrong? Uh, no. No, because God is truth and God speaks in accordance with his nature, Right? You get lies from a liar, and if you have a person who tells the truth, you get truth from them. So, it's a, it's, it's a freeing thing to come to the Scriptures and say, you know what, God, I'm just going to, by faith, because you have saved me, believe this. Now, um, Ray Comforts gives a really cool illustration about this two-year-old kid. Um, I know that some people doubt human depravity until they have two-year-old kids or until they volunteer in the nursery with two-year-old kids. So if you're here and you don't believe the Bible, um, you're an atheist or something, um, we, feel free to sit in um, with, with maybe um, Bible school or something sometime, and we will give you a evidential argument that human depravity is real. All right. So you got this two-year-old, and, uh, and his parents tell him, you see the heater bar, old-school heater, right? You remember those? Like, totally not safe at all, right? Like, catching the house on fire, you know, mom couldn't, you know, all right? So, they say, do not touch the heater bar. The kid goes and looks at it, and there's like this glowing, um, Jimmy, don't go touch a heater, man. All right. 
I thought that was funny. Start talking about touching heater bars and, you know, child runs out of the service. That's, that's awesome. You know, hear screaming a few minutes later. All right, anyway. Um, so you got this glowing heater bar, okay? And the parent says, don't touch the heater. But the little kid looks at it and he's like, it's orange. And I've got a He-Man toy and he's orange and he's awesome. So the little kid goes over and he actually grabs a hold of this heater bar. And the second, I love this illustration by Ray Comfort. I'll just give him like a, a straight up, you know, Man hug. And, uh, he, he touches the bar, and the second that his, the second that his flesh singes, he now, check this out, don't miss this, he now knows that the heater bar is hot. And we can study, which by the way, man, if you've got questions, we invite that. We don't want to make you feel guilty for your questions. We've got a whole website full to where you can just geek yourself out researching this stuff. But when it comes down to it, we come to Christ through repentance and faith. And when we receive God's gift of eternal life, we experience that we reach out and we touch the heater bar but contrary to what the heater bar would do to burn you jesus makes you alive and he saves you so i want to just make one note also on this section and that some people say all right jeff we believe the bible but what i think we should be about is being a good person all right If it's all about being a good person then we're really not that much different than even ancient pagan philosophers right Do you have to be a Christian to be a, quote, good person? If by a good person we mean you're not running around killing people, committing crimes, acts of terrorism, torture. No, you don't have to be a Christian to do that. In fact, um, the Stoics taught that in ancient times. They taught just be a good person. Um, You know, you you take groups like the Mormons, all right, who are not Christians. They don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. Um, They believe in in a Christ who had his brother as Satan. And Satan said, God, I think our plan should be we should go down to the world and we should, we should, like, through force, make everybody serve you. And Jesus had this plan, like, God, I think we should, God the Father, I think we should, you know, um, make them serve through love. And God's like, no, Satan, you know, you, your plan is wrong. And they believe a lot of really weird stuff, like God has a body. Okay, and that every person that is born here in this world is the result of, check this out, the, the physical union, alright, the active intercourse between Elohim, God, and his innumerable spirit wives. Big problem. Because if God is confined to a body, then God is not all-knowing or all-present. He can't be, because he's in a body. And if there are that many people being born around the clock, and each one of those comes as the result of a physical union between God and His spirit wives, then the question is begged, when does God have time to listen to your prayers? Okay? It's not the Christ of the Bible. But, but I mean, think about this. I've never, I've never seen a group of, of Mormon missionaries on their bicycles, right? Like, like low, you know, they're, they're like low riding with, with tech nines hanging out the side doing drive-bys. You ever seen that? No. So some people, they're like, okay, so you've you got to be a Christian to be a good person. The point throughout the Scripture is not to be good people. The point of the Scripture is that none of us can be, y'all all right? None of us can be good without Christ. So Luke begins that to, by, by kind of saying, you know what? I'm telling you guys what actually happened. And what actually happened was to provide certainty that Jesus 
The Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus of history. So he says, you know what, Theophilus, which was probably a Roman um, magistrate, a a high-up person in the government, he said there in Most Excellent Theophilus, notice verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed closely all things for some time. So here's what Luke did. He talked to all of the people involved. He got all of the evidence. And then through the Holy Spirit, he wrote what actually happened. Now, some people say, all right, Jeff, but Luke was a Jesus guy, right? Absolutely. Luke was a Christian. He's probably saved. He was a Gentile. He was probably saved on one of Paul's missionary journeys um, into uh, Asia Minor and the European area. But how could we know that Luke didn't change it? Let me give you three reasons here. Um, If Luke had wanted to change the gospel account, he would have not left the women being. Ladies, y'all alright? He would have not left the women having been the first people to be at the tomb. Why? In that day, women under the Jewish code, they couldn't go into court and give legal witness. You ladies ready to go punch somebody right now? Alright? Like legally, they were not recognized as a viable witness. So if Luke was trying to be shady about this whole thing, he would have said like, you know, one of the guys of the Sanhedrin was there. And people are like, ah, oh, but what they, what if they could have gone and talked to that Sanhedrin guy? He could have used somebody who, you know, got whisked away to Rome or someone who died of a freak accident. Basically a silent witness. But he simply recorded what actually um, happened. Number two, why would Luke have said that Jesus rose from the dead? Notice what he says again. An orderly account in verse three. In other words, systematically as it happened, why would Luke have given an account that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead when he could have fit within the way the Jews believe that there's going to be this final judgment day and simply say, you know what? Jesus is going to be raised up on that day and be in charge of the judgment. But Luke didn't do that because that's not what happened. Luke said, bro, he actually rose from the dead. Number three, this is funny. The reaction of the disciples to the women, right? When the women said, hey, um, he's not there. You notice the disciples in Luke's gospel and the other gospels, none of them said, well, of course not. Leaning back, eating figs, checking out some lamb barbecue. You know, they're like, well, of course not. He's Jesus, right? And Jesus is, of course, going to rise from the dead. I mean, that's why we're all dudes and we're all hiding together in a room in the upstairs with the door padlocked. They didn't do that. They reacted. And this, by the way, can you imagine being, can you imagine being a disciple so wherever you went to preach, people were like, so... Can you do your reaction? Hey, hey, Peter, do John's reaction again when he heard the women say that the tomb was empty. And he probably like, you know, that would have been so embarrassing because what it proved is that they were sorely mistaken. So throughout Luke's gospel, we see this, this theme. And notice verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Notice he does not say probability, but certainty. Let me give you a couple of facts about Luke before we close. And this will hopefully um, set our minds up for when we study this in the week to come. Uh, Luke wrote in the, in the early 60s A.D. This is around Nero time. Scary stuff. 
Okay? Some people say, well, we've got a bad government. Could our government be better? If you don't think so, then you have not lived here in the U.S. Yes. Why? Because we have sinners there. We are sinners, they are sinners. But imagine if the leader of the whole known world dressed himself up in animal skins and tied children to stakes. This is historical. I can show you from my library. Tied children to stakes and did unspeakable things to them. The leader of the known world. This is a scary, freaky time. Nero was a psycho. But yet, Luke was a physician. He was a companion of Paul, of Paul, and he was a diehard Jesus follower. I want you, it's there in your, in your bulletin, but I would encourage you to just look this verse up later. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And the Apostle Paul says that only Luke is with me. It's Paul's, check this out, it's his last letter. You're Paul, you're chained up in a rat-infested prison with the smell of human sewage everywhere, probably the screens of tortured prisoners, and everybody has left you. You know the executioner is shortly going to come in and take you out, put your head on the chopping block, they're going to kill you, you're going to be with Jesus, and he says at the end of his life, only, check it out, this is awesome, only, what's up, Luke? Luke is with me. Man, this guy was a die-hard Jesus follower. I pray, man, just that alone is going to encourage me when we study this book. Like, this guy is no joke, right? This guy is not the type of person that's like, well, I think I'll come to Bible study if I don't sleep in, or I'll come to church if I like the preacher, or I'll come to choir practice if we sing my type of music. This guy's like, bro, I'm there. Not only am I there, but I'm going all around bringing people as well and bringing Jesus. Praise God, man. Luke is an awesome guy. He did not back down. So for me personally, I just want to just be real. This right here, the fact that 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, only he was with Paul. And who who was he to know? Maybe the Romans might decide we want to kill you too. But he says, I'm not leaving my friend in the heat of battle. He's a true soldier, Jesus Christ. Here's our three applications. Number one, God offers us the opportunity to seek and find him. When Luke says, I've compiled a narrative, a story, an account from eyewitnesses, those who are ministers of the word, an orderly account, so that you can have certainty what God is doing here through the Gospel of Luke is opening up an invitation by saying, look guys, if you want me, you can find me. By the way, God does not play hide and seek. Y'all alright with that? Okay? God does not play hide and seek. He plays, I have come to seek and save that which was Lost. Number two, if God can preserve his word, then he can take care of me. Number three, I can have confidence that the Jesus of the Bible is actually the Jesus of history. In other words, I can actually have confidence that the Jesus that Luke presents is the Jesus who actually lived. And just to be honest, the Jesus of the Bible saves people. Amen? Word of God is so powerful. Man, I remember uh, shortly after the, the wall fell, USSR, and, and we were living in Louisiana at the time, and they had uh, this guy who was a Russian general come speak at an Assemblies of God church. And actually he had gotten saved, and he had been in combat, I believe it was in Afghanistan back in the war. And I remember he was speaking through a translator, 
And he, it was, it was awesome. Like you were like back in your seat. Like, man, this guy is a, like an incredible speaker. And, and, and he said something over and over and over again. He was talking about Russia. He says the only thing that can solve Russia's problems is, and he, he knew this much English. He would, he would point up, he'd say, Jesus! And he had this little Bible. And Bible. It was awesome. You know what I remember all these years later? You know what can save America? Jesus. And he speaks to us through his Bible. Through his word. And he said something I never forgot. He said, a Russian soldier without a Bible is a dangerous thing. And that convicted me. It has through the years because I've thought about it. If a Russian soldier without a Bible is a dangerous thing, what is a Christian who has a Bible but doesn't care about it enough to actually read it? Jesus revealed through the Bible is a thing that will radically change our lives. And it is through the witness of men like Luke and the Apostle Paul that we experience God's mercy. And not that we have to read it, but that we get to study it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we wrap this up. If you're here today, man, you've never been saved. Holy Spirit has, has shown you in your heart that you need Jesus. You don't know where you're going to go if you died right now. You need to be born again. You need to be saved. You need to transfer your life to Him. You need to put His name on the checking account of your life. The Bible says repent, believe the Gospel. Right now, give your life to the Lord. Just right there in the pew. Just say, God, I want to give my life to you. I repent. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to serve you. Just tell Him. Do business with Jesus right now. For those Christians, you may be experiencing something in your life. I just want to encourage you during this time just to say, Lord, would you bring me back to your word? Would you help me to read it, to study it? Not because I have to, because I get to. Christians, this is going to be a time where you just commit your life once again to falling in love with Jesus. Christian, have you grown away from him? Has there been a coldness towards the things of God? Is there something that's happened to you that you haven't brought to Jesus? The old song says, take it to the Lord in prayer. Just right now, whatever's going on, whatever has happened that may have brought you away from the Lord in your heart, just say, God, I want to give that to you and I want to come back. If there's any of you and you need to join this church, you know this is where God has called you. We ask you to get up out of your seat when we begin to, to sing and just come down to the front. If there's any of you who need to be baptized... We ask you to come, to be courageous and step out for Jesus. And if you're here and you got saved today, or if you're like, man, Jeff, I just want to live for Jesus. I'm ready, full bore. I want to, I want to get saved. I want to get baptized. I want to join the church. I want to just serve God. We just ask you, man, when we begin to sing, we're not saying that this walking down here saves you, but you're just letting everybody know here, letting the Lord know that I mean business and I'm ready to follow Jesus. I'm ready to be diehard like Luke and never back down. Lord, we ask that you would work in this invitation time. She would give us courage and she would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.